0: Thanks, guys. We have a quick business update. I should have done this last week, so I apologize. Um, but in the back of our bulletin, this paper bulletin that we pass out at the door, we give you financial information. We like to keep you up to date on how things are going financially. Uh, this week, we've kind of pressed into 2019 goals and where we stand. Last week, we had the end of year information, uh, and last week, we saw that our 2018 goal for income as a church, which comes through donations from folks like you that are bought into the ministry, that goal was 840,000. And what we actually hit was, I'm looking at the wrong one. Here it is. We actually hit 851,000. So we we came in 11,000 over the goal. So thank you. Uh, Appreciate your generosity. We just want to praise the Lord for that as well and just thank him for his provision um, and clarify that if you're just investigating Jesus and trying to understand who Jesus is, giving is not for you. Giving is for people who believe that Jesus has given to them, and they want to pass that on. So that's what giving is about. Uh, We don't give to impress God with us. We don't give to earn anything with each other. Uh, But what we do is we give because we believe Jesus has given to us, and we want to share that with other people. So I want to thank you for your giving, invite you. If you're one of those people that maybe is at the place of, I know Jesus has given his life for me, but you haven't begun to partner with us in ministry, I wanna encourage you to take some next steps that might be giving financially, that might be serving with your time, but encourage you to take next steps of of passing that on. Uh, But we'll always print the information here. You'll see it on the back of the bulletin and kind of know where we stand. And again, thank you for your participation with us in ministry. Um, We're now gonna spend some time looking at the scripture together. This is something that we do every week. This is a central part of our gathering because we believe that the Bible speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so right now, we're embarking on a series in the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to John, the Gospel of John. It's the fourth one. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we've, we've put some black Bibles under the chairs. I encourage you to grab one of those or use your device to look that up. But we'll be in John 1, 19 through 51 as we embark on this series called Who is Jesus, uh, page 886 in the black Bibles that you see to the chairs, if you wanna turn there, page 886. We wanna get you in the habit, giving everybody time to turn there, because we wanna get you in the habit of, of looking at this book, right? Uh, we'd love for you to get even more involved, right? Not just looking at this book on Sunday, but reading it for yourself throughout the week, maybe getting into a Bible study or a group where you wrestle it, wrestle with it some more on your own. In this series, Who is Jesus? We're trying to figure out who Jesus is, right? Who is Jesus? We're told that the way we get to know God is going through Jesus. We want to spend some time investigating what the scriptures have to say about Jesus. This week, we're going to see how the movement begins. At the end of chapter one, we're calling it followers. Followers. There's a New Testament word, disciple, which means a committed follower. The word follower itself is, is used in this text, and so there's a lot of different words you could use for this, but I'm afraid that we're losing touch with the reality behind the word. Because in our social media age, the word follower is is beginning to have a more distant and mediated kind of definition, right? Like you can have a follower online and they're really not committed to you. They just want to see what you posted, right? They just want to see the next picture that you're sending out. And so we want to look at the text and say, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does the Bible mean when it uses that word follower or disciple or student. I think one of the best ways to think about what we're gonna see in this text is we're gonna see the baton being passed from Old Testament followers of Christ to New Testament followers of Christ. I ran track uh, in junior high and high school, was never very good at it, but at least I know, you know, I know how it worked. And we would have these things called relay races, right? Any of you ever run a relay race? Uh, you pass a baton from one person to the next person and then they take their turn and then they pass the baton to someone else. There were two primary relay races in track. There was the 400-meter relay. And the 400-meter relay, each of the four people running ran 100 meters, and they ran it very, very fast, very quickly. And so you had to time the handoff perfectly. It had to be super precise, or you would drop the baton, and it was all over with. You had to make the handoff in a certain amount of time. There was an easier race that I ran called the mile relay. Well, it wasn't easy, but it was easier to make the handoff. And in that race, because you're, each person was running a 400-meter run, which is kind of like a really fast jog or a really slow sprint, right? It was easier to make the handoff. It was a little messier. You had a little more room. It happened a little more slowly. And that's like the handoff we see here. You can read about this handoff in all of the Gospels. We're going to look at John. We're going to see how John in the Gospel of John shows us the handoff between, we've got to differentiate the Johns here, not the apostle John that wrote the book, but John the Baptist. So John the Baptist had followers, and then they started following Jesus. John the Baptist was telling people to turn to God and to trust him, and then when Jesus came, he was like, go follow Jesus. So we see this handoff taking place of followers. Let's start in verse 19. So chapter one, verse 19, it says, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So he had a very public ministry. I'll just pause and explain this for a minute. Big public ministry. A lot of people are following him. And so the central religious leaders are a little freaked out. They're like, we gotta go send an investigative team to make sure this isn't a cult to see what's happening. Why is this guy leading people? What's going on here? So they're investigating. Okay, so back to verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, verse 23, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing people if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If there's any doubt, he's saying, he's the man. I'm not the man, he's the man. Go follow him. Let me pray for us and then we'll look at more of the story as we move through it this morning. God, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes, help us who are committed to see what you want from us as we follow you, help us to follow you well, help us to learn from the example of these brothers that went years and years before us. For those of us that are not sure, I pray that you would clarify for us what next steps are. How do we really investigate? How do we begin to check out the claims of Christ? We pray that your spirit would move and teach us and open our eyes this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we move through the passage, what we're going to see is we're going to see this handoff. John the Baptist just read about. He's going to start passing the baton to the first disciples of Jesus. So some of the first disciples of Jesus, first followers of Jesus, we we hear about the 12 disciples a lot, right? That kind of core team that later became apostles, which means missionaries. He later sent them out, right? But he trained with them for a while. Well, we're seeing just the very beginning of this movement right here. And so we're gonna see John the Baptist passing the baton to some of his followers who then began to follow Jesus. And then those followers invited other followers and 2000 years of that going on and and now we're here today, trying to follow Jesus in, in different ways. And so what we're going to see as we observe these followers, we're going to see three traits that I think are really helpful and challenging to us because we have kind of a shallow, surface-y understanding of following. First, we're going to see that followers are humble. We're going to see that very clearly in the life of John the Baptist. That'll play through the rest of the disciples as well, but it's really stark. It's really strong in the life of John the Baptist. Followers are humble. They're not about themselves, but they're about the one they're following. And then what we're going to see is the first followers begin to pick up that baton. We're going to see that followers invite others to be a follower is to invite others in that chain, to keep it going, so to speak, right? To, to not drop the baton, but to keep passing the baton on to others. We're going to see that as we get introduced to the first followers of Jesus. And then finally, we're going to see that followers are astonished. If you start following Jesus, he will blow your mind. I promise you that. And if he's not blowing your mind, I would question if you're really following. I know that's a strong statement, but we'll look. At that, in more detail, as we move on. So, first, we're going to look at the fact, the reality that followers are humble. We see this exemplified in the life of John the Baptist. I think first, we can see it exemplified in just what he's doing baptism. Um, What is baptism? Baptism is saying, I'm not enough. I need to repent. The word repent means to turn from what you've been relying on and to turn to God. And that's what John is doing. Now, just to be clear, kind of theologically, this gets sticky in the New Testament the baptism that we do as Christians into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not the exact same thing as what John was doing. But there's a, there's a foundation that is the same. So let's talk about what is the same, right? You can worry about the differences later, but let's talk about what's the same. The same baptism of John the Baptist and the same thing that's the similar with us in Christian baptism is we're both saying, I need to repent. We're both saying, I can't trust myself. I need to trust God. So you see this really clearly spelled out when you look more in depth about John the Baptist and what he was doing and hear his words in Matthew chapter three and in Luke chapter three. They describe his ministry, what he was saying. He was calling people to turn. There's this phrase where he's like, "Don't, don't say you're children of Abraham. That's not enough. God can turn a rock into a child of Abraham, right? You gotta turn from your heritage. Don't trust in where you were born or who your parents are or your education or how much money you got in the bank. Trust in God. Throw yourself on God's mercy. And that's the nature of John the Baptist's baptism that is, I would say, the same similarity to how we see baptism, right? We're, We're turning from self and we're turning to God. And then being baptized, being washed, being renewed into the name of Jesus, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's the foundation that points to this idea of humility. That's true humility. And then we also see it in the way that John reacted to the people he was talking about. So just as an aside, if you want to study more John this week, more John the Baptist stories, you can go to what I just mentioned, Luke 3 and Matthew 3. You could also go to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, it talks about the birth of John the Baptist and how all that came about. You could also go to, I think it's Matthew 11 11 and Matthew 14. Matthew 11 and Matthew 14, give more information about John the Baptist, right? He pops up in all the different gospels, and so you can kind of piece together his life and his story by looking at all these different places. So look again at verse 19, where we started. This is the testimony, right? This is what John was saying, his testimony, like think of testimony in court. He's he's given a report, testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. So again, remember, we talk about this a lot in church. The word confession does not mean grovel. Confess means to admit. The Greek word is homo legeo, which is literally say the same thing as. So it's a group of people agreeing with each other or us agreeing with God, like, yeah, I need your help, God. Um, or even just admitting something, publicly saying something. Those are all the connotations of, of what the word means. So he's admitting, he's not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. So this is really important, and I wanna just camp here for a moment. This is really basic humility right? And it sounds over obvious, but I want you to dwell on it for a minute. It's really important that I and you say, I'm not Jesus, okay? We need to say that. a um, matter of fact, let's practice saying it out loud. Let's just say it. I'm not Jesus. That, that wasn't so bad, was it? It's, it looks like different things in different lives. For me, it's being a people helper, right? Wanting to please people and help them. For you, it might be control issues. For you, it might be reorganizing a place you work. Um, I don't know where this comes in, but all of us have this like Messiah syndrome that can take us over sometimes, right? We're like, I can save the day, I can fix that. It's all up to me, right? We begin to carry this burden on our backs thinking we can actually save everybody or save the situation. And it's really important to start with this foundation of no, he, he's the Christ, I'm not the Christ, right? So that's just a good place to start as a follower of Christ, you're saying, I'm following him. I'm not the answer. He's the answer. And this continues. Look at verse 21. They asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So the Jews were expecting Elijah to come back based on some prophecies. They were expecting the prophet to come back. That's uh, talked about in Deuteronomy where there's like, there will be a prophet like Moses, a great prophet that will speak with the authority of Moses. Well, now we know that prophet like Moses is Jesus, right, and the way he he reveals his, his law-giving authority as the son of God. But this Elijah thing, it's interesting. Uh, John the Baptist is like, yeah, I'm not Elijah. I'm, I'm John the Baptist, right? Like, don't you know my name? Uh, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. He was saying he wasn't Elijah. Later, Jesus says he was Elijah. So what do we do with that, right? I would say this, this, this is an example of how we see Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. I would say that John was fulfilling the prophecies. He was walking in the ministry of Elijah, but he wasn't literally Elijah come back from the dead. So Jesus was like, yeah, he, he was Elijah. He was Elijah in the sense of he was fulfilling those prophecies, but he's not, he's not DNA Elijah, right? And sometimes prophecies are fulfilled that way. Sometimes they're fulfilled in like, oh, this is uh, poetically fulfilled in the life and ministry of this person. So John's like, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not Elijah. I'm, I'm John the Baptist, that's who I am. So there's humility there and this, this kind of exemplifies what Jesus said, right? Where Jesus said, don't sit at the head of the table, sit at the bottom of the table. And then if somebody wants to move you up, that's great. So John the Baptist is like, I'm not Elijah. And Jesus later moves him up. He's like, well, really, you kind of are, right? You are fulfilling that great ministry that we've all been waiting for. And again, you can find these cross references in Matthew 11, Matthew 14, other places where you look at the life of John the Baptist. So he's like, okay, I'm not these guys. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. Look at verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? This is what he says about himself. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. She's like, I'm I'm making way for the Lord. In the ancient world, they had very bad roads, so if a king is coming somewhere, if a lord, a master is coming to a city, they would prepare a road for him. Right, That would just be standard. Here, we have a lot of highways already. We're thankful for that. We live in a country with a lot of nice highways. But in the ancient world, they would have to build roads often when a dignitary or an important person was coming to that place. So that's what the prophecy is about. They're saying, make way for the Lord. um, John the Baptist sees his role as as clearing the way so that the Lord can come in. So think about this figuratively, right? Like our lives are full of, of jungle and trees and pothole and our job should be to be similar to John the Baptist who saw his job as, as being a road paver, clearing the way so that Jesus could come in to people's lives. I, I grabbed a picture here of a paver. And I think this is really helpful to think about this, right? Like these, these are awesome machines. It's really fun to get to drive some of these big machines. I got to uh, drive a backhoe for the first time a few years ago, and that was a life-changing event for me. Um, and so we can... We can get distracted about the machine that's clearing the way and forget the point of why the way is being cleared, right? Like, man, those machines probably cost $50,000. I don't know. They're incredible machines, right? They can do incredible things. And John the Baptist is like, "I'm, I'm clearing the way, and it's still not about me, right? Being a road paver, I'm not like, look at what a great road paver I am. Look at what a great voice I am crying out in the wilderness. No, he's saying, I'm not anything. I'm pointing to him. That's what he's saying here. That's Christian humility. A a book that we read a year ago, we kind of passed out the book to everybody in the church and studied it for a couple of weeks is The Secret of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. And in that, he talks about this concept of humility where you're not saying, I'm terrible, I'm a loser, I'm awful. That's not Christian humility. It's like you just kind of forget about yourself completely. You're, You're pointing to the other person, right? You're serving other people in their need in love or you're pointing people to Jesus, you're clearing the way so that that connection can be made. And I think that's what it looks like in our life. As followers of Christ, we should be humble like John where we're, we're paving the road. We're, we're moving other people so that they can see Jesus. If you continue on in the text, let's see, I stopped at the clearing the way. I got lost here in my text. Verse 24, now they'd been sent from the Pharisees. So these were the religious leaders sent the people to investigate. Verse 25, they asked him, then why are you Baptizing, If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, they're like, "You you can't really do this. You can't call people to repent from their Jewishness and trust in God and ask him for his mercy unless you have some sort of like official title or something, right? Unless you're a really important person. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, right? Like what I'm doing is really not that big a deal. I'm calling people to repentance. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So again, he's saying, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Like I don't like John's kind of pushing back on them. I don't think you get what's going on here. Someone really important is coming. They're saying to John the Baptist, like, why are you doing these important things? Why do you have followers? Why are you baptizing? Why are you calling people to repentance? Right? They're making it about him, and he keeps pushing back. It's not, it's not about me. It's about the one who's coming. It's about the one who's coming. Most theologians see this as the bridge from Old Testament to New Testament. Again, other places, Jesus talks about him being the greatest in the old covenant, right? In the old way, but this new thing is coming in Jesus. And John's like, you guys, don't, you guys don't get it, how important he is. I, I can't even untie his sandals. So in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him And he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the ultimate definition of humility, Christian humility, right? So stuff we already talked about, it's knowing who you are, not confusing yourself with Jesus, but here ultimately he's saying, I need Jesus. We all need Jesus. We are all sinners and we need that one sacrifice who will take away our sin. He's the one we've been waiting for. Everything in the Old Testament sacrificial system was just reminders, were just literary echoes, was foreshadowing. They were like cartoons. It was flannel graph. It was shadow puppets. It was pointing us towards the reality which is now here in Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's ultimate humility. Recognizing you're a sinner and that you fail to live up to what human beings were built for, which is being just and kind and loving, serving others, perfect, like like none of us do that, and that's defined as sin. And God gives an ultimate sacrifice that takes away our sin, that pays the price for us, so we can have a restored relationship with God. And John the Baptist knew that ultimate definition of humility. He knew what it was like to be in right relationship with God. So he points to him, he's, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30, he goes on, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He has to say that little background we see in Luke 1 and these other passages that we look at because John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins and John was actually older than him, right? And his ministry came first. So he's clarifying what John the gospel writer told us earlier in chapter 1 where you're saying, no, Jesus is one with God from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he ultimately came before John the Baptist, even though he took on flesh as a baby after John the Baptist. And his ministry on earth started after John the Baptist, right? So John's saying, no, he's, he's before me. He's the one. He keeps pointing back to Jesus. And then look at this, verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel and John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, "He on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen, and I' have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. So just to kind of get a little more in the weeds, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. And John the Baptist is now saying, uh, yeah, I didn't think it was him, but God told me the spirit is going to descend on him like a dove, and then you'll know he's the one. And then John's saying, and I saw that, so now I know he's the one. Do you see that? Like we think that these Bible characters just walked around with like perfect knowledge all the time, right? John the Baptist just knew because he was a holy man. No, he's like, I, like last week, I didn't know. But just yesterday, I saw the Spirit descend on him. Now I know it's him. He's the one. There's this amazing process. When we get into the New Testament, when we get into the Gospel writers, we're like, whoa, last week John the Baptist didn't know it's him. Now he knows it's him. What's really amazing is when you look at the other passages in, in Matthew, later on in John the Baptist's life, he's thrown into prison. And he's questioning again, Jesus, are you the one? And so you, you might be there, Right? might be like, I knew he was the one, and God revealed to me that he was the one, but now I'm doubting it because I'm in prison, or I've got cancer, or every relationship that matters to me has fallen apart, or I've been hurt in ways that you cannot imagine, or I've just lost all my money. And so John the Baptist sends out his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you really the one? Because I'm in prison, and I'm about to have my head chopped off. And what's really interesting is Jesus encourages him, and, and I think... What's a beautiful and scary way? He quotes the prophets and he's like, well, the, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing. And he, he gives that answer. Jesus is like, so yeah, I'm the one, right? These Messiah things are happening through me. But you know what he does? He leaves off a part of that prophetic quote that says, and the prisoners are being set free. Doesn't that hurt? That stings a little bit, right? He's telling his cousin, yeah, I'm the one, but yeah, you're gonna die in prison, Sorry like, I'm, I'm the one, trust me. And as Christians, how does this work out in our life? Well, it, it means when you start to follow Christ, you're not guaranteed that you'll never get thrown in prison. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed that you'll never lose all your money. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed that you'll never get cancer. Jesus is gonna say later in John, in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. This is the world of trouble. And we are made for heaven, but God has put us in this mission to live on earth. And he's saying, you're gonna live in the here and now and you're gonna extend my grace to other people in this world of trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So when we start following Jesus, we're following in Jesus' footsteps of one who ministered here on this world of brokenness and pain, of cancer and and prison and job loss and relationships breaking down. And so as followers of Christ, we're humble. We're like, for some reason, God's left me here. He's got work for me to do. He's got unlovable people for me to love. He's got impossible situations for me to face. But I'm still gonna say he's the one I'm gonna follow. He's my only hope. And we see this lived out, as I said, beautifully in the life of John the Baptist. So followers are humble, be humble. And I think the central metaphor that John the Baptist gives us is see yourself as a road paver. And don't get preoccupied with what an awesome road paver you are but your job is just to clear the way so that other people can see Jesus. You're like, hey, there's a pothole, and that's keeping my friend from seeing Jesus. How can I address that? And I think it's a supernatural endeavor, right? You pray, you're like, what? It, for some reason, my, my friend has this hang up and they just, they're mad at God or they don't see God or they can't understand what God has done for us in Christ. You wrestle through that with them, right? Like, again, think in the ancient world. It's not, it's not an easy thing They didn't have those pavers, right? They didn't just roll in, and then it's done, right? There's like some sweating and some working involved. We're clearing the way for the Lord to come through. How can you open the door for your friends that don't understand, that don't see, that aren't sure, that have doubts? And I see another way of looking at this road paving work that John the Baptist did. He he did important things, and at the same time, he knew he wasn't that important. I think that's a beautiful picture of being a humble follower of Jesus, right? My prayer for you and for me is that we will go out and we'll do bold things and we'll conquer the world and we'll do crazy stuff for Jesus. And at the same time, we'll be like, yeah, I'm nothing. I'm just just pointing to Jesus, right? You're gonna start businesses. You're gonna start ministries. You're gonna get involved in people's lives in bold, exciting ways. You're gonna do important work as a follower of Christ. And you're gonna keep saying, but I'm, I'm not that important, it's him. Right? You're gonna keep pointing the picture back to him. And again, prayer is what makes this work because we need the Holy Spirit. We don't naturally have the wisdom to to make all those choices that we need to make. Like, Jesus, show me what to do. Do I do this bold thing or that bold thing? How do I stay humble as I do these bold things as I invite others to you? And And that brings us to the next section. We're gonna start to see the first followers of John start to be the first followers of Jesus. And so what we're gonna see is that followers invite others. We see this worked out in John the Baptist's life, right? As a follower, he's like, hey, go follow him. He's the man. And then we're gonna see the same thing with those disciples. Those followers of John that start following Jesus are gonna invite others to follow as well. It keeps going, it keeps going, and that's why we're here today. So look at verse 35. Verse 35 says, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, his followers, his committed students is what that word means. And again, just to clarify, the word disciple, um, it's not just a classroom, right? Right? This this doesn't mean John the Baptist had a Sunday school class and they discussed things for 30 minutes every week, right? Like they were all in, they were committed. It's more like a coach or a soldier than a student. Um, So he had disciples, verse 36. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. So he keeps pointing people to Jesus. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Understand this, right? John the Baptist has people following him. And what happens? They stop following him and they follow Jesus. That's a part of what ministry looks like. You're gonna have people in your life you have great influence over and you're gonna be handing them off to Jesus. John the Baptist in another place says, I must become less, he must become greater. That's the process we see taking place here. He's inviting others to follow Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Where you stay, right? Where you stay at, Rabbi? I, I wanna see where you live. That's what they're saying. It's really fascinating, this word stay, live, dwell, abide. It's the same word as abide in John 15, right? It's this beautiful picture that a lot of Christians that have read the Bible for years love. It's a, it's a favorite passage, John 15, where we're told that to have real life in Christ is to abide in Him, is to stay in Him. It's the same word here. You're like, where, where do you live? Where do you get your life? What does your life look like? It's like, okay, come and see. Verse 39, he said to them, come, you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. It's late in the afternoon. It's what the 10th hour would be, 10th hour of the day. So they're, they're going to follow him. They're seeing where he lives. They're, they're getting to know him a little more deeply. I want encourage you to investigate. This is a really important principle, uh, that there's a level of transparency uh, when we're showing people who Jesus is, it's also important that they get to know us a little bit. This is kind of a principle I see worked out in, in a lot of ministries where um, you can know someone on a surface level, right? Think of the social media kind of knowing. You can know someone at a surface level, but you don't really know them. And Jesus is like, come come see where I live. Like really get to know me. Um, I, I grabbed a picture here of a like button, right? This is often how we think of inviting. This is how we think of following we just like something or we have followers digitally. There's a deeper knowing going on here. And that's not to say that digital knowing is bad, right? I would argue that we, we have a great opportunity in the digital age. It's, it's parallel in some ways to the first century. They called it the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome, where Rome had conquered most of the known world. They had clean water, they had good highways. And so there was this openness to the gospel traveling all over the world because there was a a bit of stability, right? There was a lot of understanding, language, they could speak the same language, they had roads and highways and water and all these things that that led to the gospel spreading. Later on in history, we see the printing press being invented. And so we see another kind of openness to the gospel spreading rapidly when the printing press was invented. I think we're in a similar age now. Who knows? You don't really know history until later, right? So we'll see. So I don't wanna hate on liking and following and you know, social media. It's not completely terrible. We just need to make sure we understand that that's not everything, right? That's kind of the surface. That's, that's the shallows of inviting people and, and we use this stuff, right? As a church, we have a Facebook page and we have a website and we encourage people to like and to follow and to share, right? So that we can clear the way so that people would see Jesus. But we want people to find something deeper. We want people to be connected in real relationships like we see with Jesus in his first followers. That's why we do small groups. That's why we encourage people to get into community. That's why we encourage people to serve in ministries in pairs and threes and fours so that you could do life together and get to know each other. Because Christianity works better in an authentic environment where we're real with people. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean like Jesus says, come and see, right? least well, talking to two people, you might know 200 people, right? Like I, as pastor of the church, I, you know, I know 1,000 people. I can't really have you all over to my house. Sorry, right? This is not gonna work. So, so our job is to kind of divide into cells. Let's, let's get to know each other and get to know each other in groups. And let's be as transparent as possible. One of the ways that this works itself out is just being real about your own junk, right? Community for Christians looks like saying, I'm struggling, will you pray for me? I need some help that's a big part of what Christian community looks like. Do you have anybody in your life like that? Where you can say, I'm struggling, will you pray for me? And you might be thinking, yeah, I don't think I have anybody like that in my life. Maybe the problem's you. Maybe you just need to take the risk and say, well, Jesus loves me, I'm gonna take the risk and ask somebody to pray for me. Maybe you just need to take that step. Christian community is like, I need help, can you help me? Will you pray for me? Here's an area where I'm struggling, and and you being willing to do the same for other people? Verse 38, where are you staying? Where are you staying? And I think this getting to know people deeply helps us to kind of tie some things together that we misunderstand. Um, Inviting people to follow Jesus is not just an extrovert thing, right? It's an extrovert thing and an introvert thing. Here we see a couple of guys coming to see where Jesus lives, right? That's an introvert thing. That's just like a couple of people getting to know each other, So like the the way I'd set this up, obviously everybody fits somewhere on the spectrum. We're not all the same. But extroverts generally are like, I wanna invite a thousand people to Jesus, but probably not have a second conversation with them, right? And I say, that's great. God bless you, right? Like go for it. And then introverts like, I wanna really get to know these three people. And that's it. I really don't wanna meet any new people, right? I say, God bless you. That's awesome. One of the cool things in the church is, is God says, we're, we're a body with different body parts and we have different roles and different likes and different gifts, so let's, let's work together, right? So if you're an extrovert, why don't you find a friend that's an introvert that can help you move past two or three conversations with people, right? Wouldn't that be a cool thing? They could stretch you a little bit and vice versa. If you're an introvert, right, tag along with an extrovert who can help you meet more than the four people that you're planning on meeting this year, right? And we, we work together. So I would say no, no shame here. We both invite people to Jesus. We both pave the way for people to meet Jesus, right? Both kinds of personalities. And you have different opportunities, right? And, and, and beyond this, again, like I was saying in the previous point, we pray. Because ultimately, we're not in control of any of this, right? We, we've got our gifts. We've got, like, the opportunities. And we're like, God, what do you want to do with this? And we pray that God would open up those doors because we can't really open up those doors for people. So both both can be good. And this reminds me of what we learned at the beginning of chapter one, that the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a community. And so God is reaching out and we see that reaching out most clearly in God the Son, Jesus Christ, the sent one coming for us. And we've kind of got these background figures, right? The quiet figures of the Father and the Holy Spirit. There's this community community working together. And it's outreach going out and it's also pulling people into a community, real relationship, almost fell over there. Um, it's pulling people into a real relationship of actually getting to know you. So there's this, there's this sense in which the introverts and the extroverts are both right and we need each other. Followers invite others. Verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see where I stay. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for about the 10th hour. Verse 40, one of the two who, were, who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah. Come on, right? Which means Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. If you ever wondered what that's about, right? So Christ and Messiah both mean the same thing which is the anointed one which means it's the one who's who's been ordained, pointed out, deputized. He's the authoritative one we've been waiting for to save us. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, "You're Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter." He's renaming him. He's like, "God's going to do new things." in your life. So we see disciples inviting disciples, followers inviting other followers. We see the baton being passed on. The next thing we're gonna see is that followers are astonished. Look at verse 43, followers are astonished, they're surprised, they're amazed. Um, Before I read the text here, let me say this one more thing. I wanna invite you to follow Jesus even if you don't have Jesus figured out yet. I said this at our Christmas services. Some of you are waiting to make sure you don't make a fool of yourself. And I would say, just start investigating Jesus. Just start following, right? Say say to Jesus, where do you stay? Go check him out. Look at his house. Check out his followers, his disciples. Get to know Jesus. Start following to decide if you wanna keep following. Does that make sense? And I promise you will be astonished. You will be amazed by Jesus. So verse 43 The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip was like, well, come and see come and see. Um, just to put it in context, this would be like you're talking to someone from Dallas or Houston. You're like, I found the Messiah. He's from Killeen. And they're like, what? <laughs> can anything good come out of Colleen?" right? So don't let those snooty Houston and Dallas and Austin people put you off, right? Good things can come out of these second-tier cities, right? And that's kind of what Nazareth was like. Didn't have a great reputation, right? It was a city. There was stuff happening there, but it wasn't the best city. Um, Philip said, just come and see. Just come and see. I know it's unlikely, but come and see. You'll be shocked. You'll be astonished. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. This is a play on words because Jacob, one of the Old Testament fathers of the faith, right? Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel means wrestles with God. Do You know what Jacob means? Jacob means deceit. Uh, It's kind of an idiom like pulling someone's leg is kind of what that means. He was grasping after his brother's heel. Um, And so Jesus sees Nathanael and he's like, oh, here's a true Israelite, one who's wrestling with God, not a Jacob, right? This is an Israel, not a Jacob. He's not a liar. He's one who's, who's coming to terms with who God is. And he goes on, verse 48, Nathanael's like, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. There's some supernatural things going on here. The Holy Spirit has revealed him to Jesus. And Nathanael answered him in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Jesus says, just wait, you'll see even more. This is a great theme in fantasy literature. Uh, I I enjoy fantasy literature myself. I really don't like adult fantasy literature. I I basically just like kids' fantasy literature, so don't hate on me for that. But um, one of my favorite stories is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We have this wardrobe that becomes a door to another world. So little Lucy is playing hide-and-seek in this old mansion. She goes into the wardrobe to hide, and she just keeps going. Right? Like she goes in thinking she's entering into a box, but it's a whole new world. That's what it's like to follow Jesus, to be a follower of Christ, is to say, I'm not sure about this. Okay, I'll walk through the door. Again, you're not completely confident. You don't know everywhere the door is going. You don't know where Jesus is going to take you, but you will be astonished. Walk through the door. Be astonished. Start following him. Another story I've really enjoyed is a book called 100 Cupboards. It's a similar kind of fantasy world concept. This little boy begins tearing away some of the plaster in his room or the wallpaper and he finds there are like a 100 cupboards that go to 100 different worlds, right? And it's kinda scary and exciting and all of that. Well, that's what it's like to follow Jesus. When you follow Jesus, when you begin following him, he's gonna astonish you, he's gonna take you to new worlds, things are gonna blow your mind, he's gonna take you places you didn't really know you were gonna go. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 2.9. This is a verse I think a lot of you have probably heard. He says, uh, what we're looking forward to ultimately in heaven or when the new heavens and the new earth are joined together and all things are made right, what we're looking forward to, Paul describes as what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has even imagined, right? More than we can ask or imagine. It's like, it'll blow your mind. It'll astonish you. Paul's saying, that's what we're headed for. What's really interesting is Paul, when he's saying that in 1 Corinthians 2, he's talking to a church that is divisive. They're not getting along with each other. And so kind of the undertone there is Paul saying, you know why you don't love each other well? Because you're not astonished enough at Jesus. You're more impressed with yourself than you are with Jesus. And so Paul is taking them back to Jesus again. He's saying, your your culture, your church, Corinth, y'all are nuts, everything's crazy you're all divided up, you're all broken, you know what'll fix that is is looking at Jesus again. Start following Jesus, and as you follow Jesus, then then you won't be able to help but love each other. These other things are gonna fall into place. We'll end with uh, verse 51 here. Verse 51, he says, well, back up and read 50 again. Jesus said, because I said to you, you're under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. You'll see greater things than these. Verse 51, here's the greater things. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's saying, I I called, you know, he called Nathaniel, he's like, you are a true Israelite, you're not Jacob, you're not the deceiver. And when you go back in Genesis, Jacob had this vision of angels ascending and descending on this ladder, the staircase between heaven and earth. Jesus is like, here I am. I am that stairway to heaven. I am that ladder. The way he says it later in John is I am the way, the road, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Saying what what you've been waiting for, it's me. I am the one that joins heaven and earth. So again, we we put ourselves often in in the the feet of John the Baptist who like, I know I want to follow Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then later we're in prison. We're about to get our head chopped off. And we're like, I'm not so sure now. I'm not so sure now. We're we're longing for heaven and earth to be joined. That's what that is, right? We're so sick of the cancer and the death and the broken relationships and the dysfunction at work. And where am I going to get enough money for retirement? And all these stresses on living in this broken world. We're so sick of that. And what that sickness is—that longing—is for heaven to be joined with earth. That's the future that we're coming to. And Jesus says He's the bridge. He's the road. He says, you're going to be totally astonished because you're going to come to me and find everything you've been looking for in me. And that will be so astonishing and so amazing and so life-changing. It will enable you and me to endure the brokenness of this world as we're working our way to that future day when all things are made right. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us so much. You sent your son, and we pray that you teach us how to be followers. Teach us the humility of not being obsessed with ourself, but of looking to you. Teach us to invite others in our extroverted ways and in our introverted ways. Teach us, Lord, to be astonished. We're hungry, Lord. We're longing for heaven and earth to be joined. Help us to be a part of that. Help us to, to see you as the bridge. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.